So every family uh, has a few stories that people only in that family will understand. And one of those uh, for me and my family comes from my Uncle Jack. Uh, Now, a little bit about my Uncle Jack. His uh, athletic loyalties and mine were different. I'm celebrating uh, because of yesterday's Mississippi State victory. Uncle Jack was an Ole Miss fan. Uh, And like, uh, he was my my dad's oldest brother. My dad's one of four brothers. Uh, All of the brothers enjoyed sort of a turn of phrase. And and Jack in particular had this marvelous vocabulary and this wonderful way of putting words together. In that respect, he uh, fell, the apple fell close to the tree, the tree being my, my grandmother, who has just the most amazing vocabulary of anyone I've ever met. Well, Michael Jack goes off to college and he comes home and he's having a conversation with my, my grandmother, his mom, and he uses this word in conversation. The uh, word is spelled E-S-O-T-E-R-I-C. Except Jack doesn't pronounce it uh, esoteric. He says esoteric. Right? And my grandmother says, Jack, what, what, was that, what was that word that you just, that you just said? And he said, you know, esoteric. Said, Jack, what do you think that means? He said, well, you know, esoteric is something that takes expertise to understand. It's specialized knowledge. Jack, did you mean esoteric? And so since that day in my family, we don't say esoteric, we say esoteric. And I have to be careful because most of you don't know that story. Uh, And I could very well be talking to the choir and say esoteric, and they think I'm, they think I don't know how words work, right? Uh, So I have to be careful. The esoteric story is one that only works in the context of a relationship between people who love each other. If I tell that story around, uh, or if I use that word and that pronunciation around non-lilies, sometimes it just doesn't work. There's some things that we can only understand in the context of a relationship. Well, today is Trinity Sunday, and the Trinity is one of those things that may seem esoteric, uh, esoteric, but is something that really can only be understood within the context of a relationship, the relationship of love, the love that's shared between Father and Son and Spirit, and the love that God has poured into our hearts, the Apostle Paul tells us. We can only understand God. We can only understand God's love for us and the love that constitutes God's very being if we are given that gift by God himself. There was a man about 17 centuries ago who understood that very well, who knew that we had to understand God because of this kind of of relationship of love. And that man's name was Athanasius. He was the bishop of Alexandria in Egypt for about 47 years in the middle of the 300s. And it's appropriate that we talk about him today because uh, Athanasius was one of the people who helped give us the language that we use today to describe the Trinity, the language that you see in the Nicene Creed, which we recited together just a little while ago. the, the language that tells us that we worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit all equally being God, um, but we only worship one God, one God in three persons. Um, and that is the God that we know and that we worship. Well, the church had always believed that, even before Athanasius. Um, but sometimes it takes a while to wrap the language around the experience that we've had. And and even to wrap the the language around the knowledge that we have obtained. And so when Athanasius was still a deacon, 
at the Council of Nicaea. He was one of the primary advocates for putting the language that we now have in the Nicene Creed into place as a testament to what the church believed. Now, theologians then, like now, like to argue. And Athanasius had an opponent. Athanasius's opponent was named Arius. And Arius claimed that Jesus, in particular, wasn't of the same substance as God. Arius said that Jesus was only like God. Jesus wasn't God himself. He was like God. And further, Arius said that there was a point in time where Jesus came into being. Athanasius said, no, the church says that Jesus has always been as the eternal son of God, uh, but then adopted life or came into human life in the incarnation with Jesus. But Jesus has always been. We talk about that in John 1 when we say, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so Athanasius opposed Arius and fought hard for this belief, not only at the Council of Nicaea, but through his whole life. And it wasn't the sort of thing that just sort of instantly was recognized. Athanasius had to fight for the relationship that he knew to be true to describe God's love. For 17 years of his 45 as, uh, as bishop in Alexandria, uh, he spent in exile, uh, five different exiles by four different emperors. He uh, was called by his opponents the Black Dwarf because he was so short and he had a dark complexion. They mocked him. Uh, and Athanasius even became known as Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world, because he was so willing to stand up for what he knew to be the right way to describe God. And this is important for Athanasius and should be important for us because it tells us something very central about who we believe God to be. We believe God to be love in God's very being that's shared between Father, Son, and Spirit. And that love, as Paul puts it in Romans 5 that we just read, has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we've been reconciled to God because of Christ. And because of what we've seen in Christ and what we've seen in the Spirit, we have to speak of God as the God who is three and one. And Paul talks about this in three ways. He says that, that God's love has been poured into our hearts and that we see that through the peace that we have with God, through the hope that we have, and through the reconciliation that we have. So peace and hope and reconciliation is how we understand the love of God through the Son and through the Spirit. Now first, peace. When we think of peace, we tend to think of something sort of far off. Someday, something that we might someday have, but that seems impossible now. You know, peace is the kind of thing that, that Miss America wishes for in her, you know, in, in the interview section, right? Uh, peace seems impossible in our time. In this century, I guess in the, in the last century, we saw war after war, uh, perhaps the bloodiest century that there ever was from World War I to World War II, the long Cold War that wasn't really that cold with Korea and Vietnam. And even now, we are engaged uh, in a long war, a long struggle with uh, terrorism. And so we know this conflict, and it seems like peace is something that is very distant from our immediate experience. Now, sometimes we humans, we get hopeful, uh, and we start to think that maybe we have grasped peace, so we can have peace in our time. Uh, between the world wars, uh, there, was a, there was sort of a moment like that. There was an international pact reached called the Kellogg-Briand Treaty. 
in which we, uh, nations agreed that they would no longer use war as an instrument uh, for, to get what they wanted. Well, how did that turn out? Not very well. You, we can think that we have peace, but very soon we find that it slips out of our hands. We know peace to be something that's very tenuous. And we can see that in the ways that sometimes we talk about peace as well. Um, I was in the Air Force, and, and in the Air Force you learn about uh, a little bit about Air Force history. And one of the great organizations in Air Force history was the Strategic Air Command. Strategic Air Command is the organization that controlled all of the intercontinental ballistic missiles and all of the long-range nuclear bombers. Uh, SAC had the world's fate in its hands. Um, that at the, at the turn of a few keys and, the, and a few flights, the world could be destroyed. But SAC's motto was, peace is our profession. And what they meant by that was that they sustained the world's peace because they had the, vi- the weapons, the violence that could keep... Uh, other people's violence at bay. But there's an irony, of course, in that statement, as they well knew, that destruction was in their very hands, that peace was something that we might think that we can obtain, we might think that we can secure, but there is the threat of non-peace. There's the threat of violence and destruction and death right along the other side. Now, that's true not just for us today. That was true in Paul's day as well. Paul writes this letter that we just read, to the church that's in Rome. Rome, which was at the time the very center of the world, the head of the world's greatest empire. And Rome claimed that it brought justice and peace to the world. We're in the midst of a time called the Pax Romana, called the Peace of Rome, this 200-year period where the world was pretty stable. Now, of course, it was stable because Rome had a tremendous military power. And in the middle of the the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, the Roman emperor would claim to be the world's Lord and Savior. And so when Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he tells them that they have peace through their Lord Jesus Christ, what he's telling them is that the peace that they have is not the kind of peace that Rome can offer. It's not the kind of peace that Strategic Air Command can offer. It's not the kind of peace that any of us can offer. It's the kind of peace that comes from God. The kind of peace that belongs to a different kind of society. A different kind of living. The kind of peace that can only be secured by the God who is three in one who sends the Son and sends the Spirit, that we might be part of God's life. And Paul takes this word justice that Rome claimed, and he turns it in a new way. He says that we have justification. What justification is, is a right relationship. You have probably uh, had a a document before where everything's lined up on the edges. Those are justified margins. To be justified is to be in a right relationship with God. What Paul says is that through Christ, we have been offered this right relationship with God. This relationship that brings us peace, the kind of peace that we can't obtain through the powers of this world. And that's true not just on this global level. That's true in our own lives as well. I would venture to guess that many of us, we may have moments of peace, but our lives are not always characterized by peace. Right now we hear sirens going by, a sign that not all is right in the world. And in in our own lives... Um, even though we may have very great lives and good things, um, you know, family life isn't always easy. Your work isn't always easy. 
And all of us know that sort of death is around the corner. We never know that the wholeness, the peace that we seem to think that we have grasped may slip away from us. And what Paul is telling us here is that the kind of peace that we can obtain for ourselves, even in our own lives, has been offered to us now by God. He says that we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have it. Not we will have it. Not we had it. That we have it right now. And it may seem like that's not even possible because of of the chaos that we know in our own lives. But Paul says that this is very real, that this gift of peace from God is present for us right now. And this this is a fulfillment of what God had always promised. In the section right before this, Paul will go on and on about how Abraham was justified by his faith, was justified by believing in God. And now we too are justified by faith in the same way. And this is a way of saying that we have been called into being a part of Abraham's family. When God called Abraham, he told, them that, told Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so we have become a part of that blessing. We have become Abraham's people. This new way of living that's not the Roman way of living, that's not contemporary America's way of living, this new claim on our lives, the peace of Christ that's offered to us by Father, Son, and Spirit, who in their very being are peace. How can that possibly be? That's because of the other thing that Paul talks about here, and that is hope. Paul says this, uh, through Jesus, through whom Jesus, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Hope like peace is something that sometimes we think we know what means, but we really don't. Sometimes when people think of hope, they think of something that's just optimism, a sunny outlook on life. Maybe things will turn out well. And we all know the old saw that an optimist is somebody who sees the glass half full, where a pessimist is someone who sees the glass half empty. But hope is something altogether different. One of my favorite theologians, Jürgen Moltmann, puts it this way. He says that genuine hope is not blind optimism. It is hope with open eyes, which sees the suffering and yet believes in the future. The person who has hope is the one who can say that the glass is empty. The glass is utterly empty, but we know that God will fill it up. We know that God's work is not done and that even when all looks like it's lost, that the promise of God is still there. It's not just a sunny outlook on whatever the facts may be. It's the knowledge that God will redeem and change and make new whatever the facts may be. And so Paul says that we can boast in our sufferings. And that, after all, is is what hope means. Um, We don't hope for something that we haven't already obtained. To hope means that we are in the midst of suffering. A little bit later in Romans, Paul puts it this way. He says, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What Paul tells us is that in this waiting, in this confidence of knowing that God will make all things new, 
that God will bring us to peace, that God will bring us to reconciliation, as we'll talk about in a moment, that is where we are made to be the Christians that God has called us to be. Where we are transformed into the likeness of God. This passage uh, that we encounter here, the love of God, has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. I'm convinced that that was John Wesley's favorite verse. He quotes it constantly in his sermons and in his writings. In fact, Wesley said, when he was asked to define what a Methodist was, he said that a Methodist is someone who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit given unto him, to to use the King James language. And that this love of God that has consumed our hearts is what enables us to hope, to look square in the face of the suffering that we encounter in our lives and that we see in this world and know that God will do something with that. And see, we as Christians, we live sort of, to put it this way, we live in the ellipses. There's an already that we have seen, dot, 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 and a not yet. We have already seen what God has done in Christ. And the reconciliation that we've been offered through Jesus. But there is a not yet. We still have suffering that we face in our own lives. We still see suffering in our community that we're called to go and address. And so we live before Christ comes back and makes all of that right. We live in this moment. Um, For those of you who aren't grammarians, but perhaps have uh, the same text messaging software that I have on your phone, you know this, right? You receive a message, and then after that, you've got the three dots, right? And they glow for you. And when you see those dots, you know that a message is coming. That's where we live as Christians. We're waiting on what God will do. But as we wait, we can live as people with hope. We can live with the presence of peace, knowing that God is not done with us yet. That God will bring to us salvation through the Father who reveals his love to us in Christ and the Holy Spirit that enables us to know God and to love God. Now this passage, the the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. We can take that in, in one of two ways. You can either take that as God's love, the love toward us has been put in our hearts. Or you could take it this way, that our love to God has been given to us by God. And I think really that both of those things are right. That this love that God offers for us enables us to be transformed even while we're waiting, even while we're suffering, even as we're looking for the work that Christ will bring to completion. And so that brings us to this last word, this last way we see love in this passage. And that's what the word reconciliation. While we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. While we had turned our backs on God, God looks squarely at our sin and offers us to come back into this life of Father, Son, and Spirit who are love in themselves and who offer that love for us. Athanasius, who I mentioned a bit ago, put it this way. He said that Jesus assumed humanity so that we might become God. And what he means there is that though Jesus, that through Jesus, we have access to the mind of God, that we we who have been created in the image of God can be restored, can be made new, can be brought back into this loving relationship that we see between the Father and Son and Spirit and that God offers to pour out on our lives. 
God does that for us, not by just forgetting the past, but by looking squarely at the reality of our lives and of our world, of the sins that we commit, by knowing what they are and loving us anyway, giving a son for us anyway, giving the spirit so that we can know that love. In South Africa, uh, after apartheid, there were these groups, uh, this group that was set up called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. What the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did was have people tell their stories of the wrong that had been done to them during the midst of apartheid, where they could confront the people who did wrong by them, to look the facts square in the face, and then on the other side of that, emerge not with hatred, but with reconciliation, being brought back into a right relationship with each other. And that is what God does for us. He knows, He knows all that we've done, but yet sends his love to us still. Now, perhaps, perhaps we don't feel like that day to day. And I think part of the, part of the reason for that is we, we so often, we, we think of, of God's love as something that we, you know, we might experience it in a moment. Perhaps you come to church and, and you worship God and you pray and you feel like you're being filled up with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you hear the wonderful music that our choir has offered to us this morning. If you're up here and they sing right behind you, it's really great. Uh, and you, feel, you get filled up a little bit. You get filled up a little bit. You say, I've got a little bit of God's love in my life. And you start to feel like, like God's been poured into your life. But you know, the week comes and you have a fight with somebody that you love and you pour it out a little bit. And then, then you have to go to work and things aren't as they ought to be. You get poured out a little bit. It seems like the love of God has left you. Maybe you look at your bank account and it's not what you would hope that it would be. You feel like the love of God doesn't seem to be there in the same way that it was. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, you live your life in such a way that you may be surrounded by God's love, and indeed God's love is offered for us at every moment, but we, you're in a posture where you can't even receive it. It pours right off of you, and you walk around dry every day. And even though God's love has been there for you, you're not there to receive it. You're not, you haven't positioned yourself in such a way that you can, can let God's love fill you. Maybe you're the kind of person who loves God, wants to serve Him. You hold 27 different offices here at the church, right? And, and you, you go out there and you try to love your neighbors and serve in the community. And you go out there and you've been filled up with God's love. And you go out and you dump it out on a couple of people, right? You go and you do the work that you've been called to do. And you go and you, go and you serve other people and you, and you get tired, right? And, and all of a sudden, you feel dry. You, you're filled up with God's love and you're trying to do good things for God. But yet you feel dry. What I would hope that we would see in what Paul tells us about God's love being poured out for us. Is that that is offered to us day by day, moment by moment, every moment. And that what God wants for us is not that we would just be temporarily filled up with God's love and then go dump it out on somebody. Or that we would be temporarily filled up with God's love and that the troubles of this world would take it away from us. But that God's love would be poured out on us by the Holy Spirit that he gave to us. So that God's love flows over us and through us and out of us into the world that God has called us to, so that we are filled up with God's love that he's given us to give us peace, to give us reconciliation, to give us hope. God's love comes 
over us and, and fills us at every moment. Perhaps you have been neglecting that kind of love. Neglecting that kind of, of relationship. The kind of thing that can only be known in a close relationship with God. The invitation to you today is to hear this good news of the power of Christ, the power of Christ that gives us peace with Him. The power of Christ that gives us hope, even when we're suffering. And, and of course, things are still bad in this world. That's the whole, that's the whole point of hoping. But to know that God's love and hope and peace and the reconciliation that's being put back in right relationship with God is offered to us even, even now. And so, brothers and sisters, as we sing, the invitation is open. Uh, perhaps you have been, perhaps you have been thinking that you want to start to follow Christ in this place and this community for some time. Uh, and if that's you, I would love to, to meet you up front so that we can welcome you to follow Christ in this place. Um, perhaps you don't want to come up in the midst of public right now, but you want to talk to me or to Lynn later. Come and find, come and find us. Come and talk to us. So that we can begin a conversation about what it means for us to follow Christ together. Brothers and sisters, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. May it be so by the power of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.